So to start out our primary message this morning, it is the verse that changed everything. And we're going to be going through Romans 1, 1 through 17, focusing on the last two verses in particular. And we're going to start out with a little bit of history, uh, just to frame why this verse uh, had such an impact on the world. How many people here have heard about the Dark Ages? Heard about the Dark Ages? Is that period during the Middle Ages, roughly speaking, about 600 A.D. to about 1500 A.D.? Um, that time that was a, a huge uh, cultural and spiritual decline, a lot of superstition, a lot of, of religious oppression. Um, Christianity kind of took a bad turn during that time and became almost oppressive. Religion, religious life was very common, but true spirituality and seeking God was very rare. And it was suppressed, ironically, by the religious elite. And one of the reasons is because they wouldn't allow a person to own a Bible. And not only wouldn't they let a, a person own a Bible, it was very difficult to own a Bible. The printing press wasn't developed until the late four, or 1470 or so, 1471, I think, um, is when the printing press was invented so if you wanted a bible you had to copy it down by hand so obviously it took a very long time to do and even when it was printed it was written in latin which nobody spoke except for those religious elite so people had no idea about what the bible really said and um, a lot of times the bible was actually chained into the church where nobody could open it or read it except for that religious elite during this time because of that there was a great deal of deception. One of the greatest examples of this, particularly in the um, starting around the uh, 1100s to about the 1400s, 1500s, there was this practice within the church called indulgences. Indulgences were started in the 11th century by Pope Urban II. And it was a reward to anyone who signed up for the Crusades. Indulgences were slips of paper that the church would give people to say that your sins, all your sins were forgiven. That even if you had a, um, a willful sin or an um, unwillful sin, any of those sins could be forgiven and that you would have freedom from purgatory. That's another thing I have to explain. If you've, if you've never been in a Catholic church, you haven't been around that. Purgatory is an idea that was developed within that time frame. It's not found in the Bible, but essentially it was spiritual jail that you would have to go to after you die. You'd have to serve some time uh, because you had to still pay some type of penalty for the sins that you committed in your life. And if you have enough people praying for you, you could get out of purgatory a little bit quicker. That's kind of this, this system that they sent up. So fast forward now in our history time to 1347. We're going to talk a little bit about why um, indulgences became a problem. In 1347, a mysterious illness begins to spread throughout the entire world at the time. People became sick with this disease. They became ill. They would blow it up, turn black, and die. This was called the Black Death, and it wipes out 60% of the world's population, particularly in Europe, or 200 million people in three years died. Totally wiped out um, 
um, Europe. It's by far the worst pandemic ever. It totally wrecked the social, political, and religious worlds in that time. And with the church, if you think about that, 60% of the people dying means that the offerings also died because nobody was coming to church. They didn't want to be around each other, and 60% of them died. So I would rough guess, but I would say probably 89% of the funds that would come into the church to support the church disappeared from the offering plates. So throughout Europe, to, to combat this, throughout Europe, various areas um, had leaders of maybe questionable integrity, and they began to demand the practice of indulgences for forgiveness of all sins because the Vatican and the churches were in, in the middle of huge building projects that needed to be finished. So these people were, there was actually professional people who would go out there called partners, and they would like walk past a tavern or something and see somebody come stumbling out and pretty much with a club say, you better give me some money for an indulgence because you're drunk, or they would pound you into the pavement. That's how bad this kind of stuff was getting. To show how bad this got, they actually actually came up with a chant they would say, or the priests would say before they would call for the offering. They said, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So in other words, if you don't want your, your dear mother who, who died in the black death to be suffering in purgatory, you better pay to get her out. So this is, this is some of the stuff that was going on. Now, if you think about the word indulgence, this, this whole practice is bad because if you indulge in something, you're giving yourself permission to do something that is pleasurable. But something that is pleasurable that is, is, is fine is because God gives us things on this earth to take pleasure in. I mean, chocolate is an indulgence, right? Hunting is an indulgence, if you think about it. Uh, vacations are an indulgence. Indulging in something that God permitted is not a problem. The problem is with indulgences were a system in which you could indulge in a forbidden pleasure and then just pay a penalty to get out of the, the eternal consequences of it. So you can just do it whenever you want. And that's why we, in the Protestant church, consider the practices of indulgences heresy. Because it's only by the cross of Jesus Christ that your sins can be forgiven. You can't pay your way out of it. You can't bribe your way out of it. You can't do a religious act to get out of it. The only thing you can do is repent of it and ask Jesus to forgive it. But this practice went largely unchallenged for centuries until the year 1517. In 1517, there was a monk who had been assigned to teach theology at the University of Wittenberg, Germany. This monk was given the assignment to translate the Latin Bible into his native German so that the priests in training could learn the Bible because they didn't want to take two years to have to teach them Latin. I don't know if you've, anybody here ever had to take Latin? It's a pretty complex, pretty complex language, right? It takes a while to learn. So they said, well, that's kind of dumb. Let's just teach them German. They can learn Latin as they go. So this monk, he was a scholar. He had been trained raised and followed his religious system to a T. He believed everything his church taught. In fact, the church at that time said that you can, if, as 
as well as paying indulgences, if you really want your sins forgiven, if you travel to Rome and crawl up the 217 steps of St. Um, Peter's Cathedral, 217 stone steps on your knees, you can have your sins forgiven. It was a religious act that, that you could do, and he did it. He went there, and he did. He went through the whole, the whole ceremony. The problem is, after he did that, he still felt condemned, and now he had sore knees. So this monk returns to Wittenberg and continues translating the Bible into his native German. When he crumbs across the scripture, we're going to focus on this morning. And that's Romans 1.17. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. A few years later, this monk, whose name is Martin Luther, wrote about this moment. He said in his diary, he said, When I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost. And the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. A few centuries later, John and Charles Wesley wrote a hymn, And Can It Be?, that has a verse that describes what Luther felt in this moment. The verses go, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, and I woke, my dungeon it flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. It's one of my favorite hymns. Luther promptly sat down when, when he read this, and he had this, this spiritual experience. He felt moved of God to sit down and consider what the church was doing to the people at the time. And he sat down and he wrote down 95 theses or statements about what was wrong with the church at that time. And many of them had to deal with the practice of indulgences. Luther strongly condemned this practice in his 95 theses, especially because the money was being asked for to build giant stone churches in St. Peter's Basilica. In Thesis 82, he wrote, Why does not the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of holy love. He has the authority, is what he was saying. As Pope, under their religious system, he can just simply declare they can leave. He says, so why does not the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of holy love and the dire need of souls that are there if he redeems an infinite amount of souls for the sake of miserable money with, to which to build the church? The former reason would be most just, the latter is most trivial. He's saying, why doesn't the Pope just declare amnesty instead of demanding money for it? In Thesis 86, he wrote, Why does not the Pope, whose wealth is greater today than the wealth of the richest Crassus, Crassus was a Roman politician of antiquity, the richest man in the world that had ever lived up until that time. So he's, he's using this to... to Point to the, the Pope's riches. He said, Why does not the Pope, whose wealth today is greater than the wealth of the richest Crassus, build this one basilica of St. Peter with his own money rather than with the money of poor believers? Martin Luther went out the next morning and nailed these 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. 
The church door, it sounds like he's being rebellious or vandalizing the church. The church door was their bulletin board in that community. His original intention was not to start a revolution. His original intention was to put something on the bulletin board and have his fellow theologians respond to it and say, hey, I'm seeing something wrong here. Why don't you guys give me your opinion? But you know what? God used that. You and I are sitting here because of his action right now. It blew up into what is now called the Protestant Reformation. And it was the beginning of coming out of the Dark Ages into the Age of Enlightenment. And we are here today because of that. And that's the power of this verse in Romans, that the righteous will live by faith. It's the verse that changed everything, everything in our world. The first thing that verse did was to destroy a religious system. You see, throughout history, humanity has tried to build a bridge to God. In the book of Genesis, we read about uh, people who wanted to build a tower to reach the heavens and dethrone God. The problem, problem is, is that they missed the point. God's already provided that bridge. He provided it through the crossbeam of Jesus Christ that we could walk across that into heaven, but we have to surrender to that first. Prior to Martin Luther discovering this truth, his religious system told him to do this and do that, and maybe God will be appeased. God said, no. When, when Luther studied the book of Romans, he said, no, I've already done it. It's written right there in the Bible. He said, religion says do, God says done. The word righteous in, in verse 17 isn't a state that you and I can strive for. It isn't something that, that if we do this and do that and do this and do that, that maybe someday we'll be righteous. No, it is something that God gives. That word in the Greek means it is a sovereign grant or gift given to us, not something that we can work for. And it's critically important for us to understand and believe and live because if we keep trying to do something through our effort, we totally profane the, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The, uh, this idea that we live by faith alone completely destroyed the political and religious system of Luther's day. And it was a good thing because it was corrupt and it was leading people into a, into a religion that didn't look anything what Christ came to give us. This truth, the righteous will live by faith, led to one of the five statements of the Reformation, also known as the five solas. You can see them on the back of your bulletin today. They're the backbone of Protestant Christianity. And every single one of them will be talked about in the book of Romans. The first one, sola gratia, by grace alone. And I've even heard it said that grace is an acronym that means God's riches at Christ's expense. If you ever wonder what grace is, that's a great way of looking at it. God's riches at Christ's expense. The next one, sola fide, by faith alone. Sola Christos, by Christ alone. Sola Scriptura, by scripture 
alone. Scripture is our only authority. It's not traditions. It's not denominational opinions or position papers. The Bible itself is our one and only standard of faith and conduct. Sola de gloria, glory to God alone. We don't worship men. We don't worship people in high bishops or superintendent or any other positions. We worship God alone. And all five of the solas support this idea that we see in Romans 1.17, that the righteous will live by faith. And it's another important point to this verse that Paul was meaning to show us, and that he links the Old Testament over here and brings it into the New Testament. You see, Romans 1.17 is really a quote from a little-known book of the Old Testament called Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet in Judah about the same time as Jeremiah. Habakkuk is standing on the walls of Jerusalem and he's seeing the Babylonian army coming to wipe them out. He knows they're coming and he's one of the watchmen looking to see when that army is coming. And he's looking down upon the city and he's seeing these people in just raw, open sin. And he asks God the question, he goes, God, how long can you let these people continue in sin? God, can't you do something about this? God replies. God says, you know what, Habakkuk? I'm about to do something about it. I'm sending the Babylonians to wipe them out. Habakkuk is kind of taken aback at that. I, I don't think Habakkuk meant, hey, God, can you come and wipe them out? I think Habakkuk's like, hey, can you like send a pillar of fire? maybe a little earthquake, a little bit of spiritual razzle-dazzle, get their attention so they repent. I don't want them wiped out. I mean, I mean, God, think about it. Yeah, these guys are sinning down there, but compared to Babylonians, they're choir boys. Those people are so evil. How can you use evil people to wipe out people who are at least somewhat holy and trying to follow you, even if we're not doing a very good job? Well, God answered him and said, judgment is is coming to them also. They'll meet their end as well. And their mighty empire will fall in a single day. And if you know history, you know that's exactly what happened. God then contrasts the soul of the proud Babylonians with the soul of a person who's following after him in this verse in Habakkuk 2 verse 4. This is God speaking. He said, Behold, his soul is puffed up, talking about the Babylonians, and is not upright within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. This is what Paul is quoting in Romans 1.17. And I bring this to your attention this morning to say this. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has never changed his mind. He was the same with Adam he was the same with Noah, the same with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, the judges, the kings, the prophets. He has always uh, looked at them, and it's always been about faith. Always been about faith. Because if you think about it, faith or lack thereof is where this whole mess started. You go back to Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. What started this this whole redemption story. The fact that, that, that mankind did not have faith. They didn't have faith. I mean, God puts them in the Garden of Eden and gives them two 
basic guidelines and one hard rule. The guidelines, eat all you want, have plenty of babies. I'm on board with that. Obviously, at least a half of that, I'm on board with that. Have lots of babies. Yeah, it sounds like a good time, right? But then he has one hard and fast rule. Don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, a knowledge of good and evil. It's the only thing they had to do. Obviously, they had faith to follow the first two because here we all sit this morning, thousands of years later. But they lacked faith in God's word and ate from the forbidden tree. It's always been about faith. This spiritual conflict that we find ourselves in, though the wars, the suffering, the evil, the disease and sickness, it all comes from this same source, not trusting in God's word. In other words, from a lack of faith in what God says is true. That's where it all comes down to. It's always been about faith, and it will always be about faith. The Bible says in, in Hebrews 11:6, without faith it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. It's incredible nuggets of truth like this that makes Romans so powerful. It's been called the gospel according to Paul. And if we back up one verse, we see this proclaimed in Romans 1.16 where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. If you ever wonder what Paul's life was about, what his mission statement was, it's right there in this one verse. He saw his mission as preaching to the Jew about the glorious riches of Jesus Christ and how he could take it from, from Genesis and take it all the way to that current day and say, you see the entire redemption story played out through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stop looking for a man to make your life better in this world Find the man who made your life better for the next one. Everything that you see in the writings of Paul wraps around these verses right here in the book of Romans. Everybody here has probably heard me say more than once that John 3, 16 and 17 are the central verses of the Bible. And you can take those verses and figure out why God is doing what he's doing in other parts of the Bible. John 3, 16 and 17 say, For God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only Son, that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And when you use that lens to look at the Bible, everything makes sense. Everything. The hard questions we would ask about God's actions in the Old Testament become crystal clear. One of those hard questions, how can a God of love order the killing of every man, woman, and child, and even some of the animals who existed in the promised land before Israel came to conquer it? And if you look at it without understanding why it was written, that looks like a pretty awful thing. But if you apply John 3, 16 and 17, 
And considering what was happening in that time in history, that the, na the people living in Palestine that Israel was about to conquer, they were deep, deep, deep in a very evil life. Idolatry, which included sexual slavery, religious rape, child sacrifice, and all in, in, in honor of their pagan gods. God didn't just show up one day and wipe them out. He gave them 400 years to repent. 400 years. Prophet after prophet went and was killed, warning them to repent. But they only grew worse. So Israel was their judgment. Just like several hundred years later, Babylon was Israel's judgment. This wasn't a temper tantrum thrown by God that let his creation get out of control, like some atheists would say. But it was God removing a great evil from the earth before it hurt more people and spread further. An oncologist is not considered evil if he cuts cancer out of your body. He's protecting the rest of the body from something that will kill it. And God, as our all-knowing, all-seeing Father, sometimes has to deal with humanity in the same way. I gave you this example not just as a rabbit trail to fill up space in a sermon. It's an example of how you should view the rest of the book of Romans. And even really the rest of Paul's writings through the prism of Romans 1, 16, and 17. It's just another way to show you the power of these verses. We receive God's grace, that, that God's riches at Christ's expense by faith. It's by faith. Paul doubles down on that in his teaching to the church of Ephesus when he said in Ephesians 2, verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. This was not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. You can't add to God's salvation. You can't buy your way into forgiveness. You can't do a mighty work to get God's favor or suffer your way into his good graces. Really, the only scorecard God keeps has a yes or a no on it. The yes or no is just an indication. Is, did that person, through faith, accept what I've already done for them? If you're trying your best to add your own good works to that scorecard, you're moving the check mark from yes to no because you're trusting in your own effort. It's only through faith and believing his plan of salvation through Jesus Christ that you can be saved. That's the gospel of God. That's the gospel that Paul was not ashamed of. And that's the gospel that Paul stated he was called to preach when he said, I am a bondservant to Jesus Christ. I am a willing slave to his gospel because my master is so awesome, I will go and sell myself to him, spiritually speaking, into slavery for him to make sure his will is done on this earth. You see him call himself a bondservant. And in that culture, that was an incredible thing of a, of a person who was totally poor, totally about to die, would sell himself into slavery. And 
under the Old Testament law, he would sell himself into this slavery for seven years. And after seven years, he would have enough money at that point to get himself back on his feet. But if he made that decision that my master is so awesome, I'd rather serve him, he could make that commitment to be a servant for life. That is what Paul is talking about when he says, I am a bondservant to the gospel. I have made this decision because this is so incredible. I am willing to give my life to do it that's a gospel that is proclaimed through the book of Romans and this book and this truth is what changed the world and it's my prayer in the coming weeks that God will change our hearts and change our minds as we explore its richness